0: Good morning, and welcome to July. I can't believe it's already July 1st, and I do want to continue to encourage you to pray for rain. Uh, Our camp sessions continue to get canceled, and we're really concerned about all those kind of things, as well as just the health of our forests and our rivers and all those kind of things. So please continue to pray for rain as we enter into what's supposed to be our monsoon season, which people who don't live in New Mexico think it's really funny that we call Our rain here, a monsoon, but it's important to us, so be in prayer for that. It's been a while since I've given you a Bible reading challenge update, so I want to do that this morning. Through uh, six months in 2018, collectively, as a church, we have read and reported 1,309 books of the Bible. The reason that we have a challenge, the reason we challenge each other to regularly be involved in Bible study is because we as a church... And we, as a leadership, believe in the transforming power of God's Word. We believe that God's Word is living and active. And we believe that every time that we open our Bibles and we open ourselves to God's Word, God does not disappoint. God doesn't leave us unchanged. God's Word is powerful. We also are a church that believes in the power of prayer. We believe that prayer is powerful and effective, and that's why we are a praying church. I want you to know we would love to pray for you. If you have something going on in your life or in the life of loved ones, we would love to know about that so that we can lift your request up to God in prayer. In order for us to do that, we need to know about your request. We'd encourage you to reach in front of you, pull out a green card, and fill out your prayer request on that. Drop it in one of our collection boxes, and you can know that we will honor your request. You can find two collection boxes at the back of the auditorium. You can find a third one through these double doors. We believe in the power of prayer. We're not only a praying church, we are a baptizing church. We believe in the power of baptism. When we are immersed in water, we join with Jesus in his death and in his burial. And when we come out of the water, we join with Jesus in his resurrection. We're born again with new life. We're cleansed of our sins. We're gifted with the Holy Spirit. We're blessed with a new family and we are forever changed. So if you're here and you believe that Jesus is the resurrected Messiah and you haven't yet been baptized, we really should have a conversation about that. And to have that conversation, I'd encourage you to take that same green card, turn it over to the back, fill out your contact information, check the box about wanting to talk to someone about baptism. You can rest assured that I will call you Monday and we will start that conversation. There is power in baptism. We also want you to know that there's power in the church. And that's why we encourage every Christian to be an active member of a local church. The church was given to us by God because we need the church. And we are given to the church by God because the church needs us. There is power in the church. We were meant to be joined together to worship and to serve as a unified church body of Christians so if you've been attending Netherwood for a while and you haven't yet let everyone know that you want to be a part of this body we should really talk about that also and to have that conversation if you use that same green card and fill out your contact information then we'll have that conversation either I or one of the elders will call you and we'll start that conversation there's power in the church there's something that you need to know about the church and the church's power. The church is robbed of much of its power when the church isn't unified. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, unity in the church. We'll be in Romans chapter 14. This would be a great time to grab your Bible and turn there. Romans chapter 14 just to kind of catch everybody up, get us on the same page. In our sermons over the last few weeks, we've been focused on transformation. Paul told us that in order to be the Christians that we are called to be, and in order to be the church that God intends for us to be, we can't be content to be conformed to the destructive patterns of the world around us. Instead, we've heard Paul insist that we individually and collectively must be transformed. And Paul says, by the renewing of our minds. And so far, we've heard Paul tell us that if we're going to have that transformation, if we're going to have the mind of Christ, we have to have a new way of thinking, a new way of thinking about ourselves, a new way of thinking about our brothers and sisters in the church. A new way of thinking about the government. A new way of thinking about our neighbors. And Paul says that those new ways of thinking will transform our attitudes. And not only will they transform our attitudes, they'll transform our actions. So that our attitudes and our actions will more closely resemble the attitudes and actions of Jesus Christ. And so last week, in the first part of this sermon, Paul told us that our thinking about unity within the church can't be conformed to the pattern of the world. He said our thinking about unity must be transformed. And we saw last week that transforming our thinking about unity presents a real problem for us. It presents a real problem for us because it forces us to fight against our human nature. See, human nature demands conformity. It demands conformity as a condition of unity. If you were here last week, you'll remember we said the song of the world goes something like this. It says, believe as I believe, feel as I feel, think as I think, do as I do. And then, and only then, will I be glad to fellowship with you. And see, that's the world's solution to unity. Conform to me, and then I will consent to be united with you. And so, as Paul is writing to the church in Rome here in chapter 14, he has a concern, and his concern is that the church in Rome is going down that same conformed path of the world and so last week we heard paul say this romans chapter 14 verse 1 he said accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters he said one man's faith allows him to eat everything but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables And the man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not. And the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does. For God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. And he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Then he goes on to say, One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Paul says, For this very reason Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. For it is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Unity was an issue in the church in Rome. And it probably isn't surprising that it was an issue. The church in Rome was incredibly diverse. It was an incredibly diverse group of Christians. If you were here last week, you'll remember we said that one extreme in the church were these Christians that Paul calls as weak. They were those festival-attending, vegetable-eating, law-observing Jews who tended to judge other Christians who didn't attend those festivals, who didn't abstain from meat, who didn't follow the Old Testament law. And then on the other extreme were the Christians that Paul calls the strong those were the festival-avoiding, meat-eating, law-ignoring Gentiles. And they tended to look down on their brothers and sisters, those who felt compelled to attend those festivals, those who were afraid to eat the meat, those who were still tied to the Old Testament law. And as we can see in what Paul has to say, Paul isn't pleased with either extreme. Now Paul has a problem with the weak, his problem with them isn't that they attend festivals, and the problem isn't that they refuse to eat meat, and his problem with them isn't that they try to keep the law. Paul's problem with them is that they expect everyone else to conform to what they do, and then they judge those who won't do what they do. But Paul also has a problem with the strong. He doesn't have a problem with them because they don't attend the festivals. And he doesn't have a problem with them because they do choose to eat meat. He has a problem with them because they look down on and they feel superior to those who won't conform to their way of thinking and their way of acting. Paul has a problem with the strong and the weak. And one of the tragedies here in Rome is that those issues that threaten to divide the church are a result of attitudes and beliefs about disputable matters. It's about matters of opinion, about matters of conscience, about issues and decisions for which God has given his children the freedom to decide what actions are appropriate for them to take. And that isn't to say that these are unimportant matters, just that they're disputable matters they're matters on which even faithful and God-fearing, Jesus-loving, Bible-believing brothers can and will disagree. And those disputes and those divisions are deepened when people in the church take one of two wrong extreme views of disputable matters. You see, unity is all but impossible if some of us insist on acting as if almost everything is a disputable matter of conscience. If we insist on behaving as if the Bible gives very little discretion, very little direction, I mean, very little authority over our behavior. But on the other hand... Unity is all but impossible if some of us persist on acting as if almost nothing is a disputable matter of conscience. If we persist in behaving as if the Bible gives clear direction and authority in almost every area that arises. And as is often the case, the truth lies somewhere between those two extremes. See, many matters are indisputable. But there are many matters that are disputable. Where even faithful, God-fearing, Jesus-loving, Bible-believing brothers and sisters won't always agree. Which is why Paul doesn't call on us to agree on all things. Instead, he tells us to be united in all things. And in order to be united in all things, the weak... And the strong have to transform their thinking and have to transform their behavior. They have to be focused on unity. So if you'll remember, last week I posed a series of questions. And those questions were specifically to my fellow weak brothers and sisters. You know who you are. You're like me. Like me, you tend to judge others who won't follow the rules and regulations and traditions that we determine are important. And so I asked my fellow weak brothers and sisters last week, who are we to condemn someone God has accepted? I mean, if God has accepted them, who are we to reject them? And I also asked my fellow weak brothers and sisters, who are we to condemn someone else's servant? God is their master. God is their judge, and only he has the right to condemn. And I also asked my fellow weak brothers and sisters, who are we to think that we are always right? And I reminded us that opening our hearts and opening our minds Opening our ears and opening our Bibles before we open our mouths to condemn, that's not a weakness. No, that's a wisdom. And finally, I ask my fellow weak brothers and sisters, who are we to think that our consciences should govern the actions of everyone else? We need to stop condemning others for violating our consciences. So those were the questions for my fellow weak brothers and sisters. And today, as I promised, we're going to have questions for my fellow strong brothers and sisters. And we know who we are, right? Our strong brothers and sisters, those are people who, like me, tend to look down on others, tend to feel superior to others, those who won't let go of traditions and won't let go of rules that I just don't believe are important. Or that aren't kept in the way that I believe are necessary. Those of us who look down and feel superior. But before we get to those questions, let's see what else Paul has to say about unity in the church. Picking up in verse 13. Paul continues on and he says, Let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. Any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother or sister's way. Let me give you just a quick word about stumbling blocks and about obstacles as Paul is using them here. Stumbling blocks are things that are carelessly left about and they cause someone to trip. They're like that Lego piece that got left out that you didn't know was there and you stepped on it in the dark last night. It wasn't left there on purpose. There was no intention to harm. But someone's careless behavior caused pain and suffering, didn't it? That's a stumbling block. But obstacles are a different thing. Obstacles are intentionally left or placed to cause someone else to trip up. They're like when your wife purposely rearranges the furniture so that you'll trip over the chair during the night when you get up to use the bathroom. Not that that's ever happened at my house. But the intention was to cause pain and suffering. It was done on purpose. That is an obstacle. And Paul says both of those things are wrong. Stumbling blocks and obstacles. Carelessly harming a brother is wrong. Walking out of Albertsons with your sirloin steaks in plain view when you by by just chance meet your vegetarian brother as he's walking in. Paul says you need to be careful about that. That's a stumbling block. And if you intentionally go up to your sister who's a vegetarian and you knock on her door just to show her the sirloins that she bought at Albertsons, that's wrong too. That's putting an obstacle in her path. Paul says it's wrong to do either one of those things. And Paul continues on. Verse 14 he says, "As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it is unclean. And if your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating, destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves, but the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats Because his eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. It's strong language. There's tough advice in there. And there's some difficult questions that we're able to pull out for those of us who are strong in our faith. Those of us who tend to look down on others. So question number one for my fellow strong brothers and sisters. Question number one. Who are we to look down on someone else whom God has lifted up? Who are we to look down on someone else whom God has lifted up? You see, our freedom from being controlled by disputable rules and disputable regulations and disputable traditions, our strength doesn't make us superior to those whose consciences won't allow those same freedoms. We aren't in any way superior to our weak brothers and sisters. Think about it this way. We were dead in our sins and they were dead in their sins. We have been made alive and have been lifted up by God and they have been made alive and lifted up by God we are completely dependent on God's love mercy and grace and they are completely dependent on God's love mercy and grace and so who are we to look down on someone whom God has lifted up question number two for my fellow strong brothers and sisters Who are we to put our love of something else, to quote Paul, be it meat or wine or anything else? Who are we to put our love of anything else above our love for our brothers and sisters? See, if Jesus gave up his life for them, surely we can give up our freedom for them our freedom to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else, surely we can give that up for those whom Christ died for. We need to be careful here, though, don't we? See, causing a brother or sister to stumble and fall is a lot more than just bothering or irritating a brother or sister. We can't take this principle too far, or a grumpy brother or a grouchy sister can hold all of us, the entire church, hostage to their enormous list of scruples which keep them constantly irritated and upset. To use an earlier analogy, this would be, like me, getting grumpy and grouchy because your kids own Legos. Even though there's no chance I'll ever step on one of their Legos, no chance that that Lego will ever cause me any harm. But I'm grouchy and grumpy just because your kids own Legos. See, you're under no obligation to throw away your kids' Legos because then I'll just find something else to be grumpy and grouchy about. So we don't put our love of anything else above our love for our brothers and sisters, but we also don't allow grumpiness and grouchiness to blackmail us or to hold us hostage. We don't take it too far which leads us to question number three for my fellow strong brothers and sisters. Who are we to act as if eating and drinking or anything else are the things that truly matter in life? Paul tells us that it's righteousness, it's peace, it's joy in the Holy Spirit are the things that truly matter. Those are the marks, those are the signs of transformed kingdom living. And if we elevate eating or drinking or anything else above righteousness, above peace, above joy, that's the mark of conformed worldly living. So who are we to act as if eating and drinking or anything else are what matters in life? Question number four for my fellow strong brothers and sisters. Who are we to leave a brother or sister behind? Remember Paul said, it's better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So we have to examine ourselves. Is what we're doing, are the actions that we're taking, are those building others up? Are those helping others keep up? We should be especially concerned about those who are young in the faith. As many of you know, I have two brothers. And you may find this hard to believe. When we were younger, we were quite competitive each of us always wanted to be first. We were fortunate enough to grow up in the mountains and we spent a lot of time out in the national forest and we spent a lot of time on trails, single track trails. And any time that we were out on those trails, we were always jockeying for position. We were always trying to be the one in the lead, always trying to be the one who was first to arrive. And we did some really interesting things. If you managed to get to the front, if you were leading your two brothers, you did everything you could to leave them behind. So we did things like we'd come to a tree with a branch and we'd grab the branch and we'd pull it aside and wait until our brother was right there and let it go so it hit him in the face. I mean, my brothers did that, but I, I, I never did that would reach over and dislodge rocks to go into the trail behind us so they would have to go over them or maybe trip and fall, would pull over logs into the trail. It wasn't very loving. It wasn't very helpful. And you'd look at that and you'd say, they want to leave their brother behind. And that's dangerous enough when we're talking about equals. Equals. But imagine this, what if I took my almost two-year-old grandson James off into the woods and I treated him the same way? How would you feel about me then? If I cared that, li- that little about my little grandson, that I would hit him in the face, that I'd put rocks in his path, that I'd pull logs in front of him so he couldn't keep up. You see, brothers and sisters, who are we to ever leave someone behind, especially someone who's new to the faith? Those are tough questions. Those are penetrating and, I hope, convicting questions for all of us, the weak and the strong, and for all of us who are like me, who are sometimes weak and who are sometimes strong. Those are strong questions. And I hope those questions bring us closer together as united brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me end with just a couple of words of advice. This is strong advice that comes from Paul. And it's advice for the weak and it's advice for the strong. In verse 22, Paul says, Whatever you believe about these things, these disputable matters, keep between yourself and God. That's good advice, isn't it? So here's a piece of advice number one. When it comes to disputable matters, let's mind our own business instead of insisting that it becomes the whole church's business. And Paul continues to say: Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats because he is eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. So here's piece of advice number two. When it comes to disputable matters, let's not condemn others. But let's also be careful and not condemn ourselves. Let's not condemn ourselves by approving of things that God clearly disapproves of. Let's not condemn ourselves by participating in things that our consciences tell us are wrong for us to do. And finally, piece of advice number three, and this is a preview of next Sunday. Let's accept each other. Let's accept each other just as Jesus Christ accepted us in order to bring praise to our God. Let's pray. Father, bind us together, knit us together, draw us close to each other. Father, help us to put the needs of our brothers and sisters before our own needs. Father, help us to to avoid doing anything intentionally or unintentionally that that would cause a brother or sister to stumble and to fall. Father, help us to be focused on what true living is all about righteousness, peace, and joy. And, Father, we look forward to the day that we will be perfectly united with you in heaven with our brothers and sisters. Lord, please send Jesus soon. It's in the name of the Christ that we pray. Amen. So I want to end by giving you uncomfortable challenge number 27. This is a counter-blessings challenge. I want to encourage you, sometime during this week, sit down. When you have some time and you have some peace and you have some, some uh, patience, sit down and make a list of all the good things about your church that you are thankful for. And then after you make that list, then give thanks and glory to God that he has blessed you with that kind of church. As we end, let's stand, let's sing. Let's sing about the love that we have. Let's love one another as God has loved us. Let's sing.